0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday, in detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, some new updates on the situation in Sudan, Uh, a major missed opportunity between the U.S. and China that I've come across, and the ever escalating war in ethiopia all that and more coming up all righty let's get into the uh not so rapid fire news So, Gambia and Chile are approaching some upcoming elections. Uh, I believe Gambia's elections are coming up faster than Chile's, Chile is in um, November, well it is November, I think Chile is in December. Uh, Portugal also coming up on some elections after their president has, I believe dissolved parliament and called for some snap elections. I almost messed up on my notes. It says map instead of snap. But, uh, pull it through. So, there's that. An oil tanker has exploded uh, off the coast in Sierra Leone. So, uh, there's probably going to be a major cleanup effort uh, following this. And a drop in oil revenues for the country. Protests around the world uh, for climate action uh, have... Well, they've they've been protesting around the world for climate action. Now, I talked last episode about sort of where I stand on the issue. Mainly the whole making pledges to reach certain carbon emission goals by certain dates. I find it hollow. No one ever really bothers trying to live up to those. And then when the day comes when the world is supposed to reach the point of no return, they just make a new date. Which leads me to believe that it's if they're not taking it seriously, then it probably just isn't as serious as they would like us to believe. And as many do believe, because, I mean, I used to, and then the world didn't end. So now I'm here uh, rooting on the uh, shale industry <laughs> and talking about the glories of coal and oil. Oh yeah, quite the change if I do say so myself, but um, the prevalence of these protests and how they keep popping up around the world, because it's been going on for a couple weeks now, mainly in lead up to and the follow up of that Glasgow summit, which is the summit where all those world leaders made promises and pledges to reach certain goals that we talked about, that was the summit. And in the lead up to it and for the few weeks after it we've seen massive somewhat spontaneous protests I mean I can't confirm (laughs) if they're like very very large but they are decent size and they're spread out across the world and I can't uh so, put my finger on if these are organized in tandem with the summit, or if these were just spontaneous, so I'll just say it what it is, these are protests and they're happening all over the world, and because they've continued happening, I've brought them up now, because usually I would read about a story and then I'd pass it up and try to <laughs> extract the news from the week, uh, but because it's been going on for so long, now it's made its way into the episode. So there's that. Uh, in Tunisia, they have issued an arrest warrant for their former president, probably on corruption charges, uh, as is usually the case with these sorts of situations. And while well, we're talking about uh, political crises, uh, the Sudanese military has released its former, the former ministers of These four sectors, the the Minister of telecommunications, the Minister of Trade, the Minister of Information, and the Minister of Youth and Sport. So that's four ministers from the civilian government that was overthrown by the military. Uh, So I guess that's not a political crisis, well, the overthrowing of the government was, but the release of these officials is not a political crisis. But the larger crisis does go on. And we'll we'll see what the military of Sudan does. Because we, Myanmar has gone very quiet. And by quiet, I mean they've just been shut out of everything. Uh, even ASEAN, to which they've been upset. And there was one story I read where ASEAN was trying to reach uh, Suu Kyi. That was the leader of the democratic faction in Myanmar, who was arrested when the military took power. And obviously, naturally, the military of Myanmar denied ASEAN access to see her. Um, so we'll, we'll see where these events go. I know it's been a while since we talked about Myanmar. But the situation in Sudan has sort of given me an excellent excuse to bring it up again. But... Again, we'll just have to see where they go, because I cannot predict it. Uh, The Sudanese military has, to be fair to them, and I brought this up the last time, they have promised elections, and I believe they promised to have them in, it was either June or July of 2022, Uh, but six months is a long time, it's a long time, so we'll we'll see. Meanwhile, Myanmar has promised (laughs) a... Has promised nothing, uh, and certainly given no hard dates for us to hold them to, or for I guess people in Myanmar to hold them to. Cause I'm not holding them to anything. <laughs> but uh, we'll really just have to see where those go. Uh, maybe they'll go somewhere good, or maybe they'll lead to a French Revolution in Africa. Maybe we'll have Sudanese Napoleon. We'd... <laughs> But uh, speaking of France, uh, the French have backed down on their threats of trade restrictions with the UK. Now that is not Napoleon, but it's modern day France. Um, and we talked about it and they were becoming a flashpoint. The English Channel becoming a flashpoint between France and Britain. But it seems now, for now, that they're, they've agreed to engage in discussions over fishing to try to Resolve the dispute Uh, Will they? Who knows? Uh, I don't I don't think the French Want to resolve the issue. That's sort of what I've come to the conclusion I've come to in Observing this situation. I do not believe the French want to resolve the situation uh in any way that doesn't go one way in that way being towards france because ultimately these are british waters that they're trying to fish in like let's if we're all just honest with ourselves these are waters that belong to britain britain is no longer a member of the eu your fishermen therefore no longer have the right to just go there and they need a license so if britain denies you the license you you can't go fish there in their waters, it's, it's their water, it's their territory, you have to respect that. France doesn't want to respect that, they don't want to use any of their other fishing waters uh, within just the areas of water that are accessible immediately to France, the Bay of Biscay, the Mediterranean, let alone the waters they can access through the rest of the EU, like the entirety of the Mediterranean, the Baltic Sea, and even the North Sea. And to a limited extent, the Black Sea as well. There's, there's a lot of places the French can go to fish. But they don't want to go there. They want to stick around in the British waters. And that's sort of that sort of seems to be the root of the problem here for me. In my observations. Uh, because it's not like you can just say it's Britain's fault. For denying some of them licenses to British waters. It's their waters; they can do what they want, really. And France has options, but I do not believe France that one of the options France wants to exercise is the option of de-escalation here. Um, but I, it's but by them backing down, I can see that they certainly don't want more escalation either. But at the same time, they don't want the status quo. They're a bit in a bit of a weird place for France. Um, so we'll keep our eyes on this. I still stand by my statement that the English Channel appears to be a flashpoint right now, and just because it's gone quiet doesn't mean it isn't one, and we can... I guess one of the better examples of that would be the Eastern Mediterranean. That's gone quiet, but that's still a flashpoint, because the second the Turks pop back up, uh, they're either gonna take it for themselves, or they're gonna get into a shooting match with the French, the Greeks, or perhaps even the Israelis over who exactly owns the Eastern Mediterranean. The Turks thinks that uh, the Turks own the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the French disagree. The Israelis and the Greeks want none of that. And Cyprus doesn't have a say in the matter. <laughs> so, there's a flashpoint that's gotten quiet for now. Still a flashpoint. English Channel, is it going quiet for now? Well, that's it. Seems to be on their way to that, but the underlying issues haven't been resolved. The French fishermen don't want to go anywhere else. They're gonna keep causing problems, and the French government is gonna stand by their people, and that's gonna to lead to problems. You add on top of that, the French are upset with Britain for sort of sideswiping them, uh, and undercutting them with the submarine deal with Australia. Uh, that was the AUKUS deal between the UK, the US, and Australia to supply them with submarines because the Australians had a deal with France for standard uh, diesel-powered submarines, I believe But the deal with the UK and the US gives them nuclear-powered submarines and the French are upset because it's not their submarines that are being bought now It's the UK and US Helping Australia design nuclear power So the French are already upset with the British and you add this on top of that and these the persistence of the fishermen to fish where they feel like fishing, and the persistence of the French government to back up their own people, I don't think the underlying tensions are going to be resolved. Because you would need the fishermen to stop, and the fishermen aren't going to stop. Because the French government wants uh, something that isn't conflict, but at the same time, they're going to back up their people, meaning... The people who have the power to stop this are the french fishermen but they're not in the talks (laughs) so i see this going on for a while that's what i see um but again the british and the french have agreed to engage in discussions to try to solve the issue so the english channel might go quiet for a while but it's still a flashpoint and we'll start to keep our eyes on it. And it's been a development watching that happen, you go from peaceful waters to a flashpoint. I guess again, Britain and France have a history. But uh, it adds to the long list of f- flashpoints we already have. Eastern Mediterranean being one of them, South China Sea, Taiwan, Ukraine. There's a whole there's a whole bunch. You know, the Middle East is a walking talking flashpoint, and increasingly East Africa is as well. There are lots of flashpoints, and now we have a new one, the English Channel. But, uh, while we're on the topic of flashpoints, there is no better place in the world to talk about flashpoints than the former Soviet sphere. Particularly the former Soviet sphere in Europe. Because we have now the Lithuanians building a border wall between them and Belarus. Belarus. A while back, we talked about uh, Lithuania accusing Belarus of uh, espionage and covert uh, fifth-generation warfare by trying to allow migrants from the Middle East to come through Belarus into Lithuania. So now they're building a border wall to stop that from happening. And they've accused the Belarusians and the Russians of all types of slander, which we can't entirely exonerate them from. Uh, because the people did have to go through those territories. And so to a certain degree, there is a bit of blame. And I can't say that Russia and Belarus wouldn't go along with the passive, uh, the passive subversion of the Lithuanian government because I'm pretty sure that they would go along with the passive subversion of the Lithuanian government, especially if all they have to do is nothing to make it happen. So, well, uh, but now there's a border wall, and I can only imagine that that has driven Belarus even further into the arms of Russia. So now there's Ukraine, and one of these days, one of these days, Ukraine is gonna disappear from the map, and it'll go back to being a geographic expression within Russia, and it is at that point that the Baltics, uh, who are already afraid of this happening, will have the Russian bear breathing down their neck as the last piece of the puzzle. So that's a, that's a flash point for, yeah, there's a flashpoint for you. There's a flashpoint, but uh, I guess we should go to the other flashpoint in the Middle East. Because uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have added themselves to the list of countries calling on the Sudanese military to reinstate the civilian government. The the Sudanese military says, uh, maybe. (laughs) They did promise elections. They did promise elections. But again, we'll have to see how things go. I don't see them reinstating the civilian government for the purposes of reinstating the civilian government. I see them probably installing some of their own people if they don't outright abolish that government and create a new government all together. There are a whole number of ways that this is going to go. Because they basically stripped everything down to the bare essentials, that being just the military. So they can really rebuild the government of Sudan in any way they want. Whether that way will be stable or not, and whether that way will last, and have the support of the people of Sudan, or the ability to last, is going to be questionable. But they have the power to do that. They can make the government however they want right now. So there's lots of options open to the military of Sudan right now, Um, but they do have large protests that they have to deal with. But for the time being... They have the power, and they're not too threatened. Their position isn't too threatened right now, so as long as that remains the case, they can sort of do whatever they want. But they should probably think about where they go from here, and that probably has to be some sort of new government, and getting people in the country to buy into that government as well. That should be their top priority right now, Uh, uh, in addition to whatever else that they were doing that led them to Take control of the government to begin with. So, Sudan has a lot on its plate, but those are some of the updates. Uh, meanwhile, the Europeans, there we go, there we go, I got lost on my notes. The Europeans have sent their first delegation to Taiwan last week. Uh, what they're gonna do with Taiwan, who knows, but they're hey, they're talking. Uh, they're one step closer to recognizing Taiwan as an independent country. How is that gonna go over with China? Mm-hmm. We we don't know. We... Oh well I, I can guarantee you the Europeans aren't gonna be fighting a war with China. Maybe the British, but the British aren't a part of the EU anymore. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Things get spicy so fast, don't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really don't see them having any real risk towards recognizing Taiwan as an independent country? Uh, Because they haven't put themselves in the same situation as the U.S. and the U.K. have, where we have warships going through the South China Sea, and we've made all these grand, absolutely reckless promises of defending this island while simultaneously refusing to recognize their government and simultaneously stating publicly that the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan has remained the same as it always was. And then we go about promising to protect them. It's a very strange situation that we have decided to put ourselves in. And now the bluff is being called more and more. And eventually the Chinese are going to make their move to take the island in some way, shape, or form. And I don't think we're going to be ready for that. I really don't. And if we are, I think the Chinese are going to be able to brute force their way through it anyway. I see Taiwan as a losing battle. I'll just say that for the umpteenth time. I see Taiwan as a losing battle. But the Europeans have not put themselves in the losing battle. They're on the other island watching the losing battle. That's where they're going to be at. They have no real presence in the South China sea other than a token one. I think the Germans sent a destroyer Good for them (laughs) Uh, Maybe if they can send a destroyer they can build an army But um, I really don't see the EU having the same sorts of restrictions Uh, Once one country within the EU goes as far as to recognize Taiwan as an independent government We'll have another example that we can test out our hypothesis of the unspoken, unofficial precedent rule, and we'll see how fast other countries in Europe recognize Taiwan as an independent country, too. So, well, we can look out for that. But Europe has sent their delegation to Taiwan. Everybody's getting one step closer to recognizing the political reality that Taiwan is a separate country, uh, and that, well... separate country is in very grave danger because the other country that is right next to them wants to uh eat them we want to eat them they want to have themselves a nice taiwan snack you know probably declare the unification of china once that happens it'll be i guess that'll be what 21st century equivalent to the unification of germany uh well, we'll see. We'll see. I can, I can definitely imagine the Chinese are gonna go all out on the partying and the celebrations to really just rub it in <laughs> that they won. So, things in the future. We'll, we'll keep our eyes on them. Meanwhile, Israel has conducted an air raid on Syrian military positions in Syria itself. Uh, this comes as part of the Israeli intervention in the Syrian Civil War, which the war is coming to a close. But we haven't seen Israel do what Arabia has been doing, which is sort of distancing themselves from that conflict and even trying to have a rapprochement with the government. Like Arabia has. They've not only stopped fighting there, largely, they've attempted to reestablish ties with the Assad government. They've done that. They're making the transition... For the post-war, Israel is not. Israel is still operating in the war phase, which means they might be behind when the war is over. And Syria's not going to appreciate that. They're going to be at the top of the shit list. And Arabia will have had multiple years of sort of smoothing out the rough edges and establishing themselves as a no longer hostile power. While the, all the negative attention is focused on Israel, so Israel might end up with a disproportionate amount of the anger and hatred of the Syrian people when the war is over, even though Arabia played a key role in screwing them over too, but because Arabia is making their transition now, they can sort of eat the loss uh, before the loss becomes too big to eat, as is probably going to be the case with Israel. I see conflict. Because what happens if Israel does this after the war is over? Because, I mean, there's nothing to stop them. They, They do this all the time. and They do it in Lebanon. They do it in Syria itself. They even do strikes on Iran when Iran isn't looking, even though Iran sleeps with one eye open. Well, at this point, I'm pretty sure they sleep with both eyes open, so they don't sleep. But... What happens when the war is over and the Israelis do this? Will there be some sort of another coalition against Israel? Military coalition to crush them? Who will participate? I can guarantee you Iran is going to participate in some way, shape, or form. I can guarantee you Syria is going to participate. Lebanon, maybe. Jordan, maybe. Arabia, though. Would they participate? I don't know. And that... Is interesting and by itself because a couple years ago we would say no they're de facto allies right now but Arabia is reassessing their position and shuffling themselves around into the post-Syrian civil war phase and I guess to a lesser extent the post-Yemen war phase as well they're adapting to the new regional order. They're having a rapprochement, they're reconciling their relations with Iran. They hate Iran. They really don't like Iran. But they're doing that anyway. Why is that? Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East. That's not your that's not a problem you want to have. And you certainly don't want to have it and Iran has a massive sphere of influence that flanks you on both sides and even threatens your rear in the case of the Houthis. You don't want to have to deal with that. You want them to be at the very least somewhat neutral towards you even if they don't like you. That's what you want. Arabia is making the transition to the post-war order of the Middle East. Israel is not. What are the consequences of that going to be? That's going to be interesting to look at. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. Because what happens, again, if Israel conducts a strike like this, because this is a blatantly them attacking the Syrian military. Right? They're just going straight at it in Syrian territory, over air- Syrian airspace, straight at Syrian people. What happens if they do that when the war is over? Because then you can't use the excuse, oh, we were just innovating in the Civil War. Oh, that that wasn't us. That was... That was the rebels, it was, it was the rebels. You're caught out in the open. What do you do then? How do other countries respond to that? The war is over and you're still bombing them? Well, maybe we need to do something about you. And I guess one of the reasons why they probably can't make the transition now is because of the Palestine issue there. It's eating up all their attention. They can't make the necessary transition. Their range of movement has been stymied by the fighting at home. They cannot do the dance to sort of get out of the way of what's coming. Their policy is on autopilot right now because their attention is at home. Their foreign policy is on autopilot. Oppose Iran. Oppose Assad. uh, Dominate the region around you militarily all while they're fighting Palestinians at home. That means they can't adapt to the environment around them as fast or as efficiently as they otherwise could, or as they may need to, because Iran is probably on track for a recovery. They have a trade deal with China, they have an infrastructure deal with China, and once the two link up, China's probably going to resurrect the Iranian oil industry just through their their demand alone. And once Iran is connected, that opens the door for Iraq and Syria and Lebanon to become connected by those land corridors as well. The countries those countries are already together in almost lockstep. So the door is going to be open. Starting with Iran, what happens when the economic situation changes and they can afford to fight Israel back? What, ha- what happens then? I think Israel is going to sleepwalk into a problem that they're not prepared to deal with. Um, I don't think they can fight all of their neighbors at once this time. I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't think they're going to be able to fight all of their neighbors at once this time. Um, especially if they don't have Saudi Arabia there to back them up. Because if Egypt decides to side with this coalition, which they might not, they they were the first to recognize Israel as a state and they sort of have their own issues right now. But I don't think Israel's going to be able to handle those problems if Iran manages to rally its sphere of influence, To go on a military campaign to fight Israel. I don't think Israel's going to be able to fight them all at once this time. Maybe they can, maybe they won't. But I think they're not prepared to deal with that right now. They've gotten used to fighting one-on-one against inferior enemies. A resurgent Iran is not going to be an inferior enemy. Especially if they're able to get their ballistic missiles within range of the Israeli heartland, uh, and by that, I mean get them close enough to where they can prop hit properly hit their targets, you know, or get within a couple feet of them. That is going to be devastating. You're talking we already talked about Iranian militias just rolling through Syrian lands with the permission of Syria in coordination with Syrian military and Russian military. That's one step down from just letting the Iranian military walk through your country. We might see a campaign like that, except instead of in Syria, it's against Iran- I mean Israel. We could see something like that. And it is kind of reminiscent of how things used to be back in, way back in the day, where war was on the table as a means of resolving political disputes. And you would send your army- and you would rally the armies of your allies. And if you were an empire, you'd gather up the peoples from all the provinces you own. And you'd get this massive army that consisted maybe of 50 to 70% of your own troops. And then the rest were your imperial subjects. And then you just went on campaign. and You destroyed the enemy army. And then you ravaged his lands. And that was the end of the political dispute because they couldn't fight you back anymore. They couldn't talk back because they were destroyed Will we see that in Israel? Will that compel Israel to use their nukes? That's another question. But that's some pretty wild speculation on my part, but very interesting questions. Indeed. Well, interesting to me, anyway. Russia and China now, uh, to sort of round out the not-so-rapid-fire news, they want UN sanctions on North Korea to be eased or lifted. So that's pretty interesting. They've decided to do that now. Yeah. Well, We'll see. I mean, I don't like sanctions anyway. So I'm okay with it. But I don't think they're going to get it. I think the U.S. is going to say no. Britain, because the U.S. says no, Britain's going to say no too. France? Maybe they say yes. But you only need one veto in the U.N. Security Council for... Everything to basically go, no. But that's what they want. And that is what I have for the not-so-rapid-fire news. And we'll get into our other segments when we get to the meat in just a moment. And we are back to talk about the U.S. and China. And what I have spotted as a major missed opportunity. So, over the last couple weeks, we talked about the major energy crisis that happened in China and their massive imports of energy from Russia. We talked last week about how they were importing coal from Russia as well. And really just leaning and depending entirely on Russia as a crutch to hold them up in the midst of this energy crisis. And I came across a story and said that Chinese coal imports were reportedly double what they were a year ago at this time. As the number of provinces with major power shortages also fell to just two. Now, they had like the vast majority of their provinces in ma- major energy shortages. Now that's come down to two. Uh, I'll add that this was uh, not power outages in general just large-scale ones. So, across the country, there are still power outages and shortages, but it's the large-scale ones that have disappeared from all but two of the provinces. But, why do I believe this situation was a missed opportunity for America to benefit from the crisis? Uh, As harsh as that may sound, but it's the honest way of putting it, why do I believe that? I was thinking about this the other day, and by thinking I mean complaining to myself about how people on my end of the political spectrum seem to hate China more than they love and care for America. And then I looked at US-China relations through that light of America first, not China last, to see if there were possibilities for the two getting along. People talk about US-China need to find a way to coexist and. How how does the U.S. need to approach China, and do they? How, how does the U.S. have to rethink its China policy? <laughs> so, in light of America first, not China last, I tried to see if I could. Well, I tried. I tried my hand at it. See if I could find a way. So, uh, how can I? How could the two get along? Get along in a way that was mutually beneficial. And didn't come with the danger of Chinese spies and IP theft. Which basically narrowed it down to just a trade. So we're going to look at the state of the countries in question. Uh, yeah, we're going to look at the state of the countries in question. China had a major energy shortfall. China is majorly dependent on coal-based power. China is no longer getting its coal from Australia because China is in a trade war with Australia and coal imports were a target of their retaliation against Australia over their political disputes. So they're not getting coal, anywhere near as much coal from Australia as they used to. They're in a major energy crisis and they are heavily dependent on coal. And they're not getting it from Australia anymore, I just want to really emphasize that. Because of the trade war. America produces massive amounts of coal. But America's phasing out coal as an energy source because the natural gas byproduct of fracking for oil in shale fields makes it so that we have both very pure and not sickly oil. It's very very non-polluting, as non-polluting as oil can get. The oil that comes from fracking and we get natural gas as a byproduct of the fracking process So we have natural gas and oil for the price of just oil energy prices in the United States uh, were plunging before uh, Mr. Biden came in Uh, But Energy has become more and more dependent on natural gas and oil So coal was being phased out. Anyway, we don't need it. China does. And therein lay the missed opportunity for America. We could have filled the gap in China's energy demand with American coal. And we could have done this from the onset of the Sino-Australian trade war. We could have stepped in. And because we were kind of in our own trade war with the entire world, but people only focus on the U.S.-China aspect of that trade renegotiation and realignment. We could have stepped in and supplied China with American coal. Uh, people talk about de-escalation. Uh, trade is the best answer to that. Because you can have you can have talks and diplomatic meetings all you want. Trade is facts on the ground. Trade is physical, tangible. You can you can touch it. You can see it. You can feel it. And that's the important part. You can feel the trade. Um, we could have filled the gap in China's energy b- demand from Australia with American coal. We're phasing it out anyway. The environmentalists here don't want it. Um, but people are concerned about American jobs. let Americans keep their jobs and sell the coal to China. China doesn't care about environmentalism anyway, they say they do, but they really don't. They're gonna burn coal anyway, you may as we may as well be in on the take. If I mean China's gonna if China's supposed to be the new superpower in a matter of years, we may as well be in on the take, and in a way that doesn't sacrifice our sovereignty, because that's one of the major points of contention. Between US-China relations, they have spies everywhere. Every company is connected to the CCP. Trade, selectively, can get around that. That's particularly energy trade, when we're the ones supplying the energy. We don't have to worry about all that. So it was a major missed opportunity. We could have gained market access to China for our coal industry and again because we aren't using coal as much as we used to and coal is still on the decline in America China's influence in America would be mitigated through that avenue we have, they have like hundreds of spies here that we could really do with rooting out but from this particular angle their influence in America would be mitigated uh beyond beyond the coal industry uh major opportunity and then when you talk about the massive energy crisis that they had because we could have done this with the trade war between China and Australia and then from there once this crisis came around where China needs all this energy we could have just ramped up exports because we already had the foot in the door and we could have benefited from this crisis The Chinese people could have benefited. American people could have benefited. Mutually beneficial trade. And people talk about de-escalation. How do you get the two sides to not want to shoot at each other? What better way to de-escalate than to help them in in their hour of need? Supplying them with energy when they were in desperate need of energy. You want to talk about a message, you want to talk about diplomacy, that's how you open doors. So, that's how you benefit people. And again, American industry benefits from that. It's mutually beneficial. That's why I see we have missed a major opportunity. Now, granted, Australia would have been the biggest loser in all this. And China still would have turned to Russia for energy, but they wouldn't have turned the, exclusively to Russia. Russia wouldn't have reaped all the rewards of this crisis that has just fallen at their doorstep. And they're just like, oh, I didn't know we were running a charity. here. some energy from you. So energy for you. Energy for you. Oh, wow. Look at all this money. <laughs> we could have been major winners as well. Okay, and Australia would have been a loser. But China would have got their energy. Russia would still be a winner. But we could have been a winner in this situation as well. Supplying them with energy when they were in an energy crisis. It would ease tensions between the two great powers. And create a healthy piece of our relationship, which is pretty unhealthy at the moment. Quite the missed opportunity, indeed. But... Now we get to talk about uh, another. Eh, no, it's. Uh, I was gonna see if I could try to segue the whole missed opportunity thing into this one, but uh, I can't quite fit that in. So I'm just gonna just gonna lay it out, and we're gonna pretend that I didn't try to segue missed opportunity into this. Well, there's the Ethiopian war reaching new heights, uh, because Tigray's fighters, uh, they're. Militants, not they don't have fighter jets, I don't believe. But their fighters appear to be at the gates of Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, while multiple anti-government groups within the country are beginning to rally behind them uh, to also take up arms against the government. The TPLF, that's the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, that's their military organization, the TPLF claims that they are around 200 or so miles from Addis Ababa. Now, while Ethiopia disputes this claim, um, considering that the US and Canada have begun evacuating their embassies and Ethiopia has declared a state of emergency, calling on the residents of the capital city to take up arms and defend their homes, I'm, I'm more leaning towards believing the claims Tigray has made over the claims of the Ethiopian government. Yet, yeah, it seems a bit far for all these other countries to be going if the capital of Ethiopia, in fact, was not in danger. Um, so, I'll believe the Tigrayans more on this one. Um, but, while we're on the subject, I've I've got to give credit to the Duran. I was watching them, and they brought up the possibility that Egypt might be aiding Tigray's war effort. Now they couldn't confirm this, but I'm still a bit jealous that I didn't see such an obvious possibility right in front of me. I mean, I'm always talking about the potential for war and conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia, yet I didn't even think that Egypt might, uh, oh, I don't know, take advantage of their enemy being in a civil war and start aiding the rebel faction. Again, we can't confirm this. This isn't confirmed, but the fine fellows over at the Duran were able to see it, and I didn't. So shout out to them. We can take that into the equation because, you know, speculation is always the fun part of geopolitics. So I can speculate away with that one. I can speculate for miles with that one. But um, back to Ethiopia. Large rallies have been held in support of the federal government so it's not like a one-sided affair where everyone hates them now there are pretty large rallies in support and strangely enough some of the people there have begun berating america uh now that they're losing it's it's a bit strange until you see sort of sort of why that is the current administration has accused the ethiopian government and this is the american administration accusing ethiopian government of human rights violations and has threatened to restrict trade ties between the US and Ethiopia. That, on top of calls, not just from the US, but from the UN and other African nations as well, for de escalation and a ceasefire uh, and talks between the Ethiopian government and the Tigrayan government. So, naturally, things that you probably don't appreciate, other people trying to do. When you're having it out with yourself over who's right in your country. Now, I know I've talked about destabilization, breeding destabilization. And then we talked about, uh, particularly when we talked about Eswatini. I brought it up and how it was in the interests of their neighbors to try to help keep the country stable. No one wants destabilization because destabilization breeds more destabilization around this destabilized area, and we can observe that in just other parts of the African continent, so it was, I said it, it, was in their interest to do so and to try to do something to help, but, but, here, I am presented with an opportunity to look at that same statement, but on the interests of from the opposite point of view. The people of the country that others are offering help to. Because at these rallies in Ethiopia, they have voiced great discontent with the foreign influence in the conflict. First of all, many don't want a ceasefire with Tigray. They want what they want to do is to put the rebellion down and reassert their country's control over the region that's what they want they don't want to hear any of this nonsense about oh you need to do this oh you need to do that oh you have to you have you have to sit down and talk with them no we're we're shooting them right now <laughs> we're, this is the, that is the absolute last thing these people want to do and for quite understandable reasons i don't imagine for a second the U.S. federal government sitting down and having talks with the Confederates for over how to resolve the war. I don't see them doing that. I, I just really don't see that happening unless they were just forced to do that, in which case, they wouldn't respect the peace. They would look for ways to undermine it at every op- opportunity they got. Um, as... The Ethiopians would as well, if they were forced to have some sort of peace with Tigray. They would try to undermine the peace as soon as they were able to. Because, again, their interest is in keeping their country together. Not, oh, you want peace, so we're going to allow secession in our country. No, 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 no. We want to keep our country together. You want peace? Let us finish our fight. That's how we get peace. Um, yeah, and as that, and with that as your outlook, naturally things like peace negotiations, uh, calls for peace negotiations, calls for ceasefire, the UN conducting a human rights investigation uh, in your country, or the deployment of foreign peacekeepers into your country. Those would only get in the way of the one thing you're trying to achieve, the reunification of your country. So, you can really see now why they're upset with countries, namely America, because, you know, it's the administration has made it their business to try to talk down to the Ethiopians and say you have to, you have to come to terms with this, um, but the Ethiopians don't want to for obvious reasons. They want their country back. (laughs) They want their country back. Uh, But according to Reuters, one attendee even went as far as to say they, they being America, they want to destroy our country like they destroyed Afghanistan. They will never succeed. We are Ethiopians. Uh, That, while most are not saying that and going that far, the anti The general anti-intervention sentiment is clearly present and is very visible and very, well, clear. The message is clear. They don't want foreign people, certainly not foreign governments, interfering in their fight. They want to fight their civil war undisturbed, just like anybody else would want to fight their civil war undisturbed. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure Assad can sympathize with that one. And even the Taliban to an extent. No one wants other people intervening in your civil wars. You want them to stay out while you have a, a firm talk with the people you're fighting with in your own country over who exactly is fit to rule the country. That, that's what people want when they're in a civil war. They, they do not want foreign powers to say anything on the matter preferably you they want other countries to say absolutely nothing they will they want other countries to shut their mouth about my civil war how dare you who, do, who are you this isn't you this isn't your business you stay over there and we're gonna shoot at each other until we decide when to stop <laughs> that's that's the outlook for most people in this conflict uh, no, the sentiment might be a bit different for Tigray. Uh, they might appreciate some foreign assistance. So long as that assistance is on their behalf and not on the behalf of Ethiopia, They, uh, I don't think they would appreciate that. And the same goes for Ethiopia. If you're going to do anything, you better help us put our country back together. If you want peace, help us. If not, stay out. If you're going to aid the rebels, you can stay out. And from a perspective like that, Other people intervening in your country, out of their interests, comes into direct conflict with your interests. Destabilization may breed more destabilization, but that doesn't mean the people living in said destabilized country are going to appreciate foreigners trying to get involved in their business. Especially when those foreigners show up trying to do so unannounced and without invitation. Uh, And you can really understand the sentiment. I mean, if this was America's Civil War, we wouldn't want other people trying to intervene on behalf of the Confederates. We wouldn't want them to try to get us to sit down and have talks with the Confederates. We'd say, no, we're going to shoot at them until they stop. (laughs) That's how everyone feels when they're in a civil war so yeah thank you for listening to this i've uh now given you the two sides of that argument uh that being the destabilization and the interest of countries around a destabilized country but yeah it's human nature and national interest you don't want others intervening in your business and I'm all for that. I don't want us intervening in their business either. Will they get what they want? We'll have to see. We'll really have to see. But best wishes to all the countries and peoples in conflict. But that is all I have for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my uh, geopolitical podcast, The World is changing folks and we are gonna have fun watching it together now i've been your host hyshawn wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics so till we meet again next monday servus